Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Do North Outdoors podcast. I am one of your hosts, Natalie Dillon, joined by Travis Frank, our other host. Travis, this is the first one we've done together in several weeks. It feels like it's because been forever. You, you abandoned us <laughs> for the great unknown. The last frontier. The last frontier. That's mm-hmm. what they call it. You've been in Alaska. Yeah, it was a pretty epic journey. It, you know, like people use the word epic a lot. That yeah. was, it was epic. Yeah, I mean... The hiking, hunting up in the mountains, the uh, fishing on the Kenai River, um, you know, it's a legendary place for a reason. It's everything you would think it could be and so much more. I'm just grateful for the opportunity to go up there. I have been to Alaska before in a different setting entirely. Uh, it was winter, it was cold. We got in a a float plane, I think I told you this, or mm-hmm. a small plane and got into a storm and I didn't think we were going to land. And so this time going back up, um, we did have, uh, with my guest, Bob Letta on last week's show, uh, we did take a flight up and, oh, it was just like, I mean, it was just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I, there's no way you can really capture like the beauty and you know this from some of your amazing adventures, but there's no way you can capture the beauty of some of those places with a photo or with video because it's, you're so small. Very true. Yeah. You're you're so small sitting there and, you know, climbing up, pushing your body to get to those places where let's be realistic. Few people in this world will ever step foot on some of those rocks on top of those mountains. Yeah. And, and we should mention we, the last episode of this podcast, if you missed, definitely go back and listen to it because it was recorded on site in Alaska with a special guest, a pilot from up there. A bush pilot of I think 27 years. Yeah. So very interesting. Listen, make sure to check that one out. And then today we'll get to it in in a few minutes. I won't, um, give it away yet, but we've got another special guest today that I think that anybody who's interested in the outdoors fishing, Science will be very interested to learn. I'm from. excited about today's but, show. Yeah. Really, and I'm well, like- yeah. But um, what you said a second ago about Alaska, I have to say, like, I was fortunate enough to be there a decade ago camping, and what you mentioned, just the scale of it, is what stood out to me. It was just like everything, every mountain, every stream, every animal, for that matter, just right? Right. an enormous place. And it is. It's it's one of those places, you know, like. It's not feasible for everybody maybe right now or, but at some point in your life, if you can plan and save a little bit away, just budget for it Mm -hmm. if you need to, or whatever, whatever you have to do to experience some of those places, it can kind of put life into a little bit of better perspective. I think, um, when, when you're small in this world, that's good. It's humbling. Exactly. And then, you know, like it just, the, the creation that's out there. It's so breathtaking. Um, Alina, I always like to say it sounds cheesy, but I'm going to share it here anyway. Yeah. Spend more places, spend more time in the places that make you feel small with the people who make you feel big. Yeah. Wrote that one myself. Did Isn't you it really nice? author <laughs> yeah. Natalie Dillon? Yep. Said well me. done. But there's, and with that, we can move on. And well, I, I will say, you know, we're, I'm excited to put together the TV shows that we're going to air that uh, part of that journey. But when we were leaving, we're driving back to the airport and there was a few shots we wanted to get, B-roll we call mm-hmm. them, you know, just scenics and things that were happening. But the salmon run was happening. And to me, and we were driving along the Kenai River and it's just a legendary place. And if you, if you 
heard anything about the salmon run in Alaska, that's where it happens. And I'm standing there on the bank and they're literally piled up at your right feet. at my feet. And I didn't have a fishing pole mm-hmm. and I was going absolutely crazy. It's a problem. It's your I own was fault. going absolutely nuts. And we pulled over in this campsite. I ran to, Brandon's laughing. I ran to every camper in that site asking if somebody had a fishing pole. I didn't even care if it was a stick. I was trying yeah. to figure out, I wanted to get my hands on one of these fish because it's like, I may never see this again. I may never be here again. And the timing is right now. They're literally, you know, doing the bumping sides. And, yeah. You know, they're laying eggs It's like once right in there. a lifetime. It's once in yeah. a lifetime. I'm looking, is there a grizzly going to eat one of these? Because I want to get my hands on one yeah. and I wanted it so bad. And my wife got me this little pocket fishing pole that folds up, you know, and I was so mad at myself because I looked at it before I left and I didn't bring it. Should have been with you. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yes. So, but to see it, to stand there mm-hmm. and watch it, it's just a powerful thing. The water is moving at like seven or eight miles an hour. It's just screaming past you. And here are these bright red fish just coming up to the mm-hmm. surface. And the water's got this aqua imagine. blue water color to it. And it's just like, I sat there for a little bit. First mad at myself for not having a fishing pole, but then also just appreciating how cool of a thing it is. They go out to the ocean, they come in, they spawn. There were some that were dying as Mm -hmm. well. Like you see the whole life cycle happening right there. But to just stand there again and watch that was a a moment that I will definitely always remember for those two reasons. To see it and then be mad at myself for not bringing a fishing pole, which is the last time I'm ever going to do that. You said it, not I me. Never, I'm going to take a fishing pole. It's being recorded. Pole. It's being published. So we will hold you to it. This is true. True story. <laughs> I take a fishing pole pretty much everywhere I go. Is always one in my truck. Underneath my topper, you'll find yeah. a fishing pole almost all the time because I never know if there's a if I'm driving and I see something and I have to make a cast because I don't want to miss now that you chance. Know. Yeah. yeah. Your cool. carry-on bag will now have <laughs> a carry-on bag yeah, yep. at all times. And it, it's a beautiful little sleeve and everything. I just had to put a reel in it. I'm so foolish. So mad at myself. All right, on with today's show. We have an awesome guest. Camden Glade is our guest. I've been following Camden for a little bit because I'm intrigued by the project that he's working on. And if you fish or you are interested in fish or science or biology, this is a show that you're going to be very... I hope you're going to be very uh, happy that you're tuning into. Camden is a fisheries research specialist at Bemidji State University. Um, he has the distinct privilege of studying fish diets. So let's bring Camden in right now. Camden, are you there? I'm here. Appreciate you taking time today Welcome, to join Camden. us. Um, Thank what, you. Is, did I get that title correct? Is it fisheries research specialist, I think? Yeah, that's what they call me. Um, different places have different names for it, but basically I'm a post-master's research assistant working on different projects for the university. I think another title might be fish puke specialist. Fish puke well, specialist. Is. Yeah, that's what that's what my friends like to call me. <laughs> gotcha. So, I, I like your fish puke Fridays. We'll get into it in a second, but I just have to say, that's what you call them, right? On Instagram? Yep, yep that's what I've been trying to do on Instagram for a while, so I... Got a little inconsistent here towards the end of summer. I started getting low on video, but we've started our fall sampling run here the last couple of weeks. So there should be more more videos coming here before too long. So if somebody asks you, Camden, what is it that you do? How do you explain it to them? Uh, basically, I make fish puke and look to see what they've been eating is how I try to explain it. That's a pretty good summation yeah. of it. When did this... Uh, program start. And I don't know of any others before you started doing this one. 
Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's been a, a variety of diet studies throughout the years. Um, kind of the, the biggest, most well-documented one looking at muskies is from kind of the mid to late nineties over in Wisconsin. They did something pretty similar looking at what muskies were eating in lakes over there. Uh, this project started in 2019 and has been running basically anytime there's open water in Minnesota since then. Gotcha. What? So, Go ahead, Natalie. Yeah, I want to just from a high level, we're, we're all anglers here. So I'd love to think I'll pretend that the reason that you're doing this study is just so you can figure out what fish are eating so that we all know how to catch more fish and you can help us out. But I, I understand there's a little bit more to it. So if you could kind of give us an overview of how this idea came about and why, you know, you chose to actually do this study and what you were hoping to learn. Right. So I guess I didn't necessarily choose to do this study. Uh, people smarter than me made the decision that this is something that need to be looked at. And I was lucky enough to be the guy that got to do it. Um, but basically it kind of stems from oh, a handful of years ago. Now there was a little bit of pushback in terms of the muskie stocking program in Minnesota with people that were concerned that muskies were eating all of the food in the lake or that they were eating uh, other game fish that people were interested in catching, whether that be walleye or crappie or, you know, some of those other popular fish species. And so there was, there was a concern there and really just kind of a lack of data and a lack of knowledge on what the muskies were actually eating in some of these systems and how that might be affecting the other fish populations, especially in systems where they're stocked and they're not naturally there and naturally occurring on their own. Were you an angler before you started this? And I, I know you're a, a fisherman as well, but was, were you interested? I mean, you said you were lucky enough to do this, but what made you so excited to take on this project? Yeah, I, about the time that the most recent, you know, really big pushback on muskie stocking was coming up, I was just finishing my bachelor's degree and working on some projects and uh, kind of realizing that, grad school was something I was going to need to do at some point in order to get a, a biologist job. Uh, so this, this was kind of something that was on my radar as well, uh, just in the back of my mind as a project that might be really cool to do and would really provide some valuable information for some of the management agencies. Um, I do tell people I've been an angler a lot longer than I've been a scientist. Uh, some of my earliest memories were catching bullheads and bluegills off of my grandpa's dock. And there's pictures and videos of us fishing together even before I can remember. So I've been fishing basically my whole life and uh, more recently have kind of taken a, a scientific approach to it, if you will. I think it's really interesting that so many, probably basically most people that fish kind of think of themselves as being little scientists. We're always, you know, whether it's reading the the lake or the conditions or, you know, doing guesswork on what the fish are doing, how they hunt, what they eat, all that stuff. And I think it's very cool that you're actually taking it to the next level for all of us who like to put on the scientist hat every now and again, but really are just basing it off of our, our own instincts. And uh, we're, we're definitely, as we said, really excited to, to learn more about, you know, your study and what you found out um, and, and what implications. Yeah. So you're, you're four years into it now, Camden. <clears throat> and is the study wrapping up soon or is it still ongoing? Yep. So this will be the last field season. Uh, we'll be out on the lakes here 
Oh, hopefully not until the lakes freeze up, but we have been known to push it into, you know, mid-November in some years, depending on how things are going. Um, in an ideal world, we'll be out on the lakes for another couple of weeks and we'll get all the fish we need to look at for the fall. And then we'll be wrapping up here before too long. Are you just looking at muskies or if, over the course of this study, have you also taken a look at other species? Yeah, we've been looking at other species too. So the species included are muskies, walleye, northern pike, and largemouth bass. And kind of the reason for that is because uh, going into this study, a, a lot of the, the headlines were that muskies were eating all the walleye. And through looking through some of the other diet studies that have been done, we had a pretty good idea that that probably wasn't happening in Minnesota lakes. But we didn't know if maybe the muskies were eating lots of perch that the walleye and the pike were relying on for food as well, or if they were eating, you know, some of the other common prey species that would maybe um, in stocked systems add a, a layer of competition that maybe wasn't there prior to muskies being stocked. So the the premise of the project was to get more information on what the muskies are actually eating and then look at how that compares to the other predators in a lot of these Minnesota lakes. How, how wide of a area are you targeting? Is it central Minnesota? Is it northern Minnesota? Can you, can you tell us kind of like where you've sampled? Yeah, so it's, we tried to take a pretty broad look and cover a pretty wide area of Minnesota. Um, just based on the lake types and where a lot of these uh, musky lakes are located, they're pretty concentrated in kind of the north central region of the state, basically from uh, the Bemidji area over towards Grand Rapids and uh, then down towards like the Longville area. Kind of in that portion of the state, we do have two kind of west central Minnesota lakes uh, that we looked at and then a couple down towards the, the metro area as well. Um, and part of the reason for that, too, beyond just the muskies, uh, there was a recent study led by one of the Minnesota DNR researchers that I'm working with, and they were looking at uh, predator diets in Elk Lake in Itasca State Park uh, and using a little bit different, different approach, uh, looking at the chemistry of their tissues rather than the actual stomach contents. But they, they were able to determine that uh, ciscos or tulabies were a big part of the diet for the muskies and then some of the larger pike and walleye as well. So we wanted to kind of look at that angle as well. So we looked at lakes with and without cisco to see how that prey source might affect the, the diets of the other predators. So just between needing muskies in the lakes and needing cisco in a bunch of the lakes, uh, that kind of limited us a little bit to kind of the north central region of the state. But we did cover kind of like the the middle to northern third of the state, I guess I'll say, if you kind of draw a line about where I-94 cuts across the state. Uh, basically from there up to Bemidji, we have a pretty good chunk of that uh, part of the state covered. So very, yeah, large, large portion, as you mentioned. And, you know, we've got a sense now, I think all of us for kind of the, the length and the size and the scope of the study. So let's talk about the actual study yeah. itself now. How you've mentioned, you know, looking at the contents of, you know, what is inside the fish, what the, what they're eating. So can you walk us through how you've done this, how you actually, you know, get the fish when you go out and, and how you're able to actually see what they are eating? 
Yeah. So a lot of our stuff, a lot of the work we do uh, happens at night. Um, that's primarily because we're collecting our fish uh, by electrofishing. So if you've spent any time on a lake uh, after dark, chances are pretty good. You've seen a DNR boat at some point with big spotlights and then big booms with these metal chandeliers hanging off the front. And they've got loud generators running and people moving around. And so that's that's kind of the setup that we're running with. Um, the electrofishing boat runs off of a generator and it pumps electrical currents into the water off of the booms. And then that just provides enough of a jolt to kind of stun the fish and lets them float up to the surface so that we can net them and bring them on the boat. And then they recover shortly after that. It just it kind of stuns their muscles without really causing any internal damage to them. So we're able to get the fish that way. And then we basically just use a, a bilge pump connect to a garden hose to kind of pump lake water into the fish's stomach and flush out anything that they've eaten recently. So you just stick it right down their throat and it comes right out next to the hose? Yeah. It, in an ideal world, that's how it works. Um, <laughs> obviously, simple some, enough. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Anyone and, could do it, some, right? <laughs> some of them work exactly like that. Some of them are a little more challenging, uh, especially with some of the muskies. If they've eaten something really big recently, it's just, it's hard to get kind of their esophagus to stretch out enough to let something come back out super easily. So we do use like a our favorite is kind of a metal kitchen tongs that you can get at Target or something. But we've also used kind of like a an extra long hemostat to reach in and grab the tail that's starting to come out and then just encourage whatever they've eaten to come back out a little a little easier. I'm always amazed at the size of a fish that another fish will attack. And sometimes it's like, dude, you're trying to eat something bigger than you. you better, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's going to have physics. Seen, I've seen a lot of floating fish on the surface that had something way too large stuck in its throat. But I imagine, you know, with muskies, you've probably seen some enormous fish that you've pulled out of their bellies. Oh, yeah. Um, but we've seen a few of them, you know, where the prey is over half of the length of, of the muskie that ate it. So, you know, you're talking about a muskie that could be anywhere from 40 to 50 inches. Well, that's a 20 to 25 inch Northern Pike or white sucker that, that muskie has basically just swallowed whole. So I they, saw, they don't. I, I saw a dead muskie MLX one time that had a 26 inch walleye stuck in its, wow. in its throat, which is actually, it surprised me a lot because my experience and knowledge with muskies is that they don't target walleyes. You know, there might be a wounded fish that they'll go after, but unlike northern, northern to me seem like they eat a lot more walleyes. But a muskie being an opportunistic feeder, if something's wounded, they'll come after it, but they don't typically target walleyes from all the research that I've ever done. So Camden, based on your four years studying these fish, what are you seeing? What are these fish eating? Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of start with what you just said. We have seen very few walleye in the musky stomachs. Um, I think at this point we've looked at, or we've gotten diets from over 400 muskies, I think, throughout the study so far. And we have seen only three walleye in those musky diets so far. Wow. Three so total? Three total. Wow. So a, a really, really small percentage of of what they're eating is walleye. And the walleye that we did see were... We're all really small, you know, less than 
nine or ten inches, I think. So those, the walleye are not a big part of the musky diet. What we have seen for the musky diet is that they they kind of run the lake and they know it and they eat anything and everything and whatever they really feel like at any given point. Um, we've seen everything from little perch and and minnows. Um, occasionally, we'll see like crayfish or other aquatic insects in the musky diets, all the way up to you know. 20 to 26 inch northern pike, uh, big white suckers, a few bowfin even in some musky diets. So they they really just kind of eat whatever and whenever they feel like it. I've watched, uh, I ended up catching this fish a couple, this was 20 years ago, but I ended up catching it a few days after this fish ate it. But I watched a full grown wood duck get taken down by a muskie. It's one of my favorite stories. People always ask, what have you seen? Like, what, what do the muskies eat? I'm like, well, I've seen them eat a full-size mm-hmm. wood duck. Um, have you seen other birds in their diets? Yeah, a handful. Um, the biggest one was probably a, a full-grown coot that we saw in a muskie diet last fall. Um, but Did other you post than a that, picture of that one on your Instagram? I had, that was, there was a video of that okay. one. Yep. Maybe it was so. a video. So, and, and I'll jump in and say that y- you do a fantastic job of a court recording so much of this on your Instagram. What, what is the name of it? What's your handle? So people at home can check it out. I, I think my handle is just Camden Glade, all lowercase. Um, otherwise if you just search Camden Glade or search the hashtag fish mm-hmm. puke, I should, I should come <laughs> yeah. up there on Instagram. Yeah. And you then probably I do are post- the only one that has that covered. Hopefully. <laughs> right. Um, I do post a little bit on Twitter as well. Um, that's at Kglade underscore fishsci, so F-I-S-H-S-C-I. Um, that's a little bit more professional and maybe science based, whereas some of the Instagram stuff is a little more lighthearted and fun. But most of the pictures and the videos get posted on both spots. Yeah, and I, I, I was looking at your Instagram beforehand, and of course some of the information that you're sharing is fascinating and insightful and we'll get through more of it today but even just the videos that and the pictures seeing the you know half digested birds and again like we were talking about the size of some of these fish coming out of you know the mouth of muskies it's pretty incredible so props to you for for sharing that with the rest of us who aren't able to experience it um alongside you but is there anything else that like really jumped out or surprised you that you found that muskies are eating or any uh, unique stories? Uh, we've seen a few muskrats, um, not for a couple years now, but uh, we did see a few of those. Um, yeah, other than that, it's just kind of whatever fish you might imagine are in any given lake, we basically see the majority of them in a muskie diet at some point. So it's, it's pretty interesting that way. So of course the, the presence of different fish species is going to be, you know, depending on what, what lake you're on is going to be, um, one of the biggest factors I'd imagine for what the muskies are eating, but are there other factors that you see playing a part outside of just what's available to them? That's kind of one of the more interesting things we've seen, um, there really isn't anything else that's playing a factor in the muskie diets. And that's unique to the muskies. The other species, there are other factors that seem to be playing a little bit into their diets. But the muskie diets, I, I mentioned earlier, we're looking at lakes with and without Cisco. And there really wasn't an, an influence there. Um, 
up until this year, we really hadn't seen very many Cisco at all in the musky diets. Uh, that's started to change with the two lakes we're on this year. But beyond that, I basically all of their prey are pretty evenly distributed in lakes with and without Cisco, which has been really interesting and not at all what we expected to see. Did you do any of your studies on Lake Mille Lacs by chance? We did not look at Mille Lacs. So okay. that's just too big of a lake for how we're going about it with just one crew. So we tried to focus on some of the smaller lakes that were a little bit more manageable. I feel like there's certain lakes, you know, my, my years of fishing muskies, you know, one of the most um, amazing fall musky fishing windows happens usually the last week of October and the first two weeks of November when the tulabi or the Cisco come into spawn, some of those giant state record caliber fish are spending the entire season out in the main lake where they're not relating to structure, they're relating to schools of tulabi. Well, the tulabi come into spawn in the shallow rocks when the water temp is in that like 38, 40 degree range and the muskies now are, you can actually target them on structures. So those fish, in my my belief, is that their their diet is almost exclusively then Cisco or Tulabi. Do you feel like that is an accurate um, guess on my part? Yeah, it definitely could be, and I would say that's that's probably a similar scenario to what they saw on Elk Lake in that other study. Um, it and it all depends on the lake too. Um, Admittedly, some of our lakes with Cisco probably don't have as good of Cisco populations as maybe they did a handful of years ago, especially some of those those west central Minnesota lakes where they're starting to push towards the southern boundary of kind of the Cisco range in Minnesota. Um, but yeah, beyond that, uh, kind of to play off your point where the muskies are keying in on the spawning Cisco, I will say that we see by far the most perch in diets right away in the spring when we get out on the water. And that's, that's kind of across the board for all the predators where they're, they're basically just staging right outside these schools of perch that are moving up to spawn almost immediately after the ice goes out. And I mean, we've seen walleye and pike with 20 to 30 individual little yellow perch in their bellies in the spring. And we had one muskie that had 97 individual perch in its belly wow. in, and that was like last week of april first week of may kind of shortly after the ice goes out so i think maybe not necessarily that they're keying in on a certain prey source but there's definitely a possibility that they're keying in on kind of spawning prey where maybe their their focus and their energy is directed more towards reproduction as opposed to avoiding predation. So they may be a little bit preoccupied and concentrated and then a little bit more vulnerable to being eaten by these predators. So one question that I get asked a lot from people that I take fishing, how often do muskies eat? Can you, have you learned that since you've been uh, working on this study? I haven't. Um, it's a little bit tricky. So you know, it's it's hard for us to think about because we as mammals are warm blooded. So our our metabolism, our body temperature, it's all kind of self-regulated internally. And so we we kind of develop these patterns where we're hungry at certain times of day and we need to eat kind of throughout the day to sustain ourselves and that's consistent throughout the year. Fish are cold blooded, so they're 
their metabolism and their body energy is dictated by the temperature of the water that surrounds them. So their, their metabolism is vastly different in January under two feet of ice as it is in August when the water temperature is 80 degrees. And even throughout the course of the open water season, when you're swinging from barely, barely open water in the early spring, water temps in the low 40s to midsummer and then back down again, uh, their digestion, that process takes different amounts of time depending on the water temperature around them. And so that that plays into how often they're going to be feeding. Um, and then the size of the meals that they're eating also plays into that. If they if a muskie eats a big, you know, 22 inch white sucker that weighs four pounds, that's going to take a while to digest even in the summer. Whereas if it's eating a couple little two inch yellow perch, those might not last as long. And then that that fish will be more apt to feed sooner again. My understanding of muskies is that they prefer soft-bodied fish, like a sucker or a tulipy, or you know, like I live in even pike, even pike. Yeah, I live or the, or other muskies. <clears throat> I live in Lake or I live in Waconia and fish Lake Waconia quite a bit. And there are tula or there are um, sheephead or freshwater drum in that lake. And that, in my understanding, is their top forage. You're saying, looking at these fish, you think they're taking they're opportunistic or they're eating everything but they're, they're not favoring a specific food in your studies nothing that we've seen has indicated that they're favoring any one's prey source over another um there are some some prey that are a little bit higher than others uh so kind of the two the two highest ones that we've seen so far have been yellow perch and northern pike actually and yellow perch were more important in lakes with cisco and northern pike were more important in lakes without Cisco, but the the differences weren't enough to really be considered significant. I guess if you want to use the the scientific terminology, so it's yeah the the prey is pretty well spread out across all of the available prey sources that they have. Let's hear a little bit more about the diet overlap between or or lack thereof between the different you know, predators and lakes, which I know is a big piece of, of what your study um, was focusing on. So what else did you learn about what muskies in a particular lake might eat as compared to, you know, the bass or the walleye um, or, you know, pike for that matter in that lake and what we can learn from that or what implications that has? Right. So the, the pike and the walleye um, had pretty pretty specialized diets compared to the muskies and, and the bass did too, for that matter. Um, so pike and walleye fed much more heavily on yellow perch in lakes with Cisco. And then in lakes without Cisco, uh, that shifted more towards sunfish. Um, and I, sh I should clarify here. So a lot of the Cisco lakes that we're looking at, those are kind of your, your classic, up north walleye lakes, the deep clear lakes, and they just also happen to have Cisco present. But there, there's other characteristics of those lakes that probably make them better suited for abundant yellow perch populations, whereas some of the shallower, weedier lakes that you might think of more as like a bass panfish lake, those aren't going to have Cisco, but they're also going to have really abundant sunfish populations as opposed to more yellow perch. So that's that's kind of what we're seeing there for the pike and the walleye. 
And then kind of a similar story for largemouth bass, but instead of yellow perch, they're actually eating a lot more crayfish in lakes with Cisco. And kind of the same thing, a lot of those deep clear lakes have a, a lot more rocky bottoms, habitat suited for for those crayfish to survive. So it's it kind of comes back to the prey abundance more so than any one individual species presence or absence. Hey, Minnesota deer hunters, if you're heading into the field this season, the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources is asking for your help to stop the spread of chronic wasting disease. Here's what you need to know and need to do. Step one, find your deer permit area number. Step two, find out if mandatory CWD sampling, carcass movement restrictions, or other CWD regulations impact your hunt date and locations. Step three, make a plan. You may need to change your traditional steps. Find your deer permit area and all the details that you need to know at mndnr.gov slash deer hunt. That's mndnr.gov slash deer hunt. This episode of Do North Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Sportsman's Guide. For everything you need to enjoy the fun, freedom, and traditions of the outdoors, you got to check out sportsmansguide.com. From hunting and fishing to camping, hiking, and just hanging around a bonfire in the backyard, you'll find it all at Sportsman's Guide. Tree stands, blinds, rods and reels, ATV accessories, and so much more. Clothing and footwear, too, from top-notch brands like Scentlock, Nomad, Mountain Hardware, Irish Setter, Danner, Ah, the list just keeps on going. Plus, a full line of firearms, ammo, and accessories. The bottom line, if it happens outdoors, you'll find it at Sportsman's Guide. Shop today at sportsmansguide.com and use the code DUNORTH for $20 off your first order. That's DUNORTH, all one word, for $20 off your first order. Question about how you capture the fish that I think, in my mind, might lead me to feel like they're eating a certain fish. If you're, if the only way that you capture them is by sight and the electrodes in the water stunning them, do you think there's a chance that those fish in shallower waters are feeding on, you know, the, the perch or the sunnies in that area and not Cisco because the Cisco might be running at 20 feet below the surface and therefore the fish that are eating them are at the same depths where you're not reaching them? Yeah, that's definitely a possibility and something we've, we've tried to take into consideration when we're we're talking about this is that just because we're not seeing the Cisco doesn't mean they're they're not a big part of it. And this, so the study that I'm working on is actually part of a, a bigger project that will also be using the, the tissue chemistry aspect to look at diets of these fish. And so they should be able to pick up on if Cisco are a big part of the diets in some of these lakes. Um, with that said, we're, we're doing everything the same this year, and we're seeing substantially more Cisco in the diets, both for muskies and then for the pike and the walleye as well. So it's we're not sure if maybe just the little bit cooler summer this year has provided a little bit more access to shallower water for the Cisco, whereas they might be pinched a little bit deeper in some of the warmer summers, or if maybe we're just in a couple lakes this year that have far better Cisco populations than some of the other lakes we've looked at, that could be a possibility as well. But we are seeing a lot more Cisco in the diets this year, and nothing else has really changed in our methods. This this is on the, the Cisco topic. I've seen, I feel like the Cisco population, similar to, you know, 
Mille Lacs gets a lot of headlines and people kind of study the lake and they follow it, what the forage is doing. And that's one of the only lakes that people really hear a report about, Hey, there's a good perch uh, year class out there this year because that's feeding the walleyes. Um, but I feel like the Cisco's go through a cycle too. So if the numbers are high, you know, maybe they had a good year and there's a good couple of year classes there. I don't know what their life expectancy is, but you know, that could feed into what the, what the predator fish are eating. And it's good to hear that they're being eaten by walleye in Northern as well as a muskie too. Right. Right. Yep. And that's, that's something that we're, we were interested in um, both in terms of, you know, what lakes are, are maybe best suited to be managed for all three of these predators at the same time. If, if there's Cisco there, maybe that's an extra prey source that could kind of uh, spread out the competition a little bit more. Um, but it's also interesting just because um, with kind of the, the changes in the climate in the area and the warming water temperatures and the longer summers, there's, there's concern about what Cisco populations will look like going forward, especially kind of at the southern edge of their range. So it's, it's important to know how they play into these food webs so that we kind of know what the consequences might be if we lose them in some lakes and how we can maybe mitigate some of that. As far as stocked fish in lakes versus natural lakes, is there any difference in the diets on stocked fish versus natural? So uh, we're working on Cass Lake this year, which is a natural fishery. And then we looked at one other natural lake prior to this. Um, so there's, we really don't have the, the number of lakes done yet where we can look at natural versus stocked. Um, that said, it, with how everything has shaken out in terms of Cisco versus non-Cisco and just looking at kind of what important prey are, I would be pretty surprised to see a big difference in stocked lakes versus natural lakes. Something that's just standing out to me throughout this conversation is, and it surprises me just to learn how muskies don't seem to discriminate on what they eat, that they're going to eat what's available to them. And I think I come at it from, I don't know if this is going to be interesting to anybody else or if it's just me, but you know what they say. If it's, if it's interesting to you, maybe somebody else will have the same question. But I think Travis knows I'm into, you know, health and wellness and nutrition and all that. And it's always been my understanding that animals evolve to eat what they need for nutrition. Um, you know, whether it's eating, as we talked about fish that maybe don't have, uh, you know, a lot of bones to get through or a spine or something like that, or just, um, you know, learning to target the types of food that they need in order to thrive. So you've seen no correlation between what muskies choose to eat and, you know, what can help provide them with the nutrients and, you know, something that they're able to digest. There's really no, no correlation that you've seen there. No, we really haven't seen That's any crazy, big differences. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it, and maybe it is. they're and just that of... well adapted that they can just, you know, they eat anything and they're going to make it work for them. Well, but I, I want to say one thing on top of that, Natalie, it, it's interesting to me that I fish a variety of different lakes and, and muskies. And since we're talking strictly muskies right now on, and I've said before that muskies eat sheephead in Lake Waconia. Well, there's also a great muskie population in Minnetonka and other Metro lakes. On average, I tell people this, on average, a 50-inch muskie in Lake Waconia is going to weigh roughly five pounds more than it would in Lake Minnetonka because of the food they're eating being mm -hmm. the sheephead. It's high, a high-fatty, high yeah. it's a, like a Cisco. It's just, it's a high-fatty fish. 
um, and they're they've been thicker, wider, deeper. I mean, they're just a a bigger fish, and I attribute that to the food they're eating. But it's interesting to hear though that they're eating a little bit of everything. Maybe it's just a percentage of the fatty food is going in. I don't know. I mean, Cannon, what's your take on that? Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to say. Um, there was a study not too long ago from Wisconsin, and they kind of looked at uh, the population dynamics of muskies in lakes with and without Cisco, um, just to see if, you know, everybody says, if you want to catch a really big fish, you fish a, a Cisco lake because that's a high fat fish. The, the muskies will grow faster. They'll get bigger. And they did see that, um, there, there were some slight differences, but in terms of kind of the biggest fish that they were, the biggest muskies that they were able to contact in the lakes, there really wasn't a difference between lakes with Cisco and without Cisco. Um, these, these aquatic ecosystems are just so, so complex and they have so many moving parts. Um, you, you play into it, what kinds of food are available, but then you also have to look at how much food is available and how many different predators there are, both in terms of numbers within a given population, so the, the population density of a specific species. But then you're also th talking about all of the different predators across the different species in a lake. And there's, there's a certain number of, or a certain biomass that a, any given lake is able to support and that can be lots of small fish or just a handful of really big fish. And it's, it's all dictated by water temperature and nutrients and available forage and plant growth. And there's just so many moving parts that it's, it's really hard to point at any one thing and make a really strong case for that being the reason these fish are bigger or these fish are fatter or there's more of them. It's just, there's, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts. So we know your study is wrapping up soon in a few months. Are there any other like outstanding questions um, or things that you're hoping to learn that you haven't yet uh, that you're hoping to, you know, get some answers to in the next couple months? Yeah, next couple months we'll really just be focused on kind of wrapping up the field work. Uh, once we get done with that, we'll kind of do a little bit of number crunching and looking at the data. Um, we do kind of have plans to try to try to write a paper to kind of update, provide an update on that old Wisconsin diet study paper that was published just to, to take another look at it and uh, provide a Minnesota perspective there. Um, and then we've also kind of got plans to um, look at a few different things with the, the diets and the overlap. Uh, and then, Another DNR researcher is kind of in year two of a three-year study where he's uh, doing population estimates of all four predator species in three different lakes and then using the diet data that we've collected to kind of uh, provide estimates of how much uh, food and what kinds of food the entire populations are eating in these lakes and just trying to look at how... Uh, how they're contributing to the consumption of the available biomass bio of prey in these lakes. So we're, we're excited to see where that one goes. He's got some, some pretty cool preliminary data that I've been able to see and, and look at. So that'll be really interesting once that gets wrapped up uh, at the end of next year. A lot of 
walleye anglers blame muskies for any time they don't catch what they're after. <laughs> That's just truth. I mean, that has been going on for years. Do you have numbers? So you said out of over four, roughly 400 muskies, you've found three walleyes total in the last four years. When you looked at the walleye uh, bellies inside of them, how many walleyes have they eaten? Uh, so far, we have seen six. Um, there, we've looked at more walleye stomachs. Uh, so the percentage is, I mean, all of the percentages are far below like 1% of what their diet is. Uh, but yeah, we have seen more just in terms of raw numbers in walleye stomachs than we have in musky stomachs. So more walleyes are eating walleyes than muskies eating walleyes? Right. Yep. Would northern, would they eat more walleye? Yeah, they, so we've seen 14 in uh, piked stomachs, 14 walleye in piked stomachs. So, so your percentages would be what, 2%? It's, it's still far below 1%. We've looked at over 1,000 pike diets. Nothing likes to eat walleyes except for us. Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. That's what we've learned here, the big picture. So we know you're, you're partway through the study, so you probably can't give too many overarching you know, conclusions right now, but... If somebody somebody were to ask you today, not me, but somebody, I think, that, are muskies, I think that's what you're doing right now. Is are asking. muskies eating all of the prey and stealing it all from every other fish in the lake? What would you answer? I, I would say no. Um, if you if you look at any one individual fish, obviously a big fifty inch muskie is going to have to eat more food in a given year than a fifteen inch walleye or a twenty two inch pike or a seventeen inch largemouth. But when you when you start to look at the population sizes of all of those, the the muskies in these systems are managed at such a low density because they are kind of a trophy trophy fish and an apex predator. Um, there's just not very many of them in a given lake compared to all these other species. That the amount of food that they're actually eating is is pretty minimal compared to the other populations in a lot of these lakes. I, I sometimes wonder too, like a, you mentioned a 22 inch Northern eating less than a 50 inch muskie. I, I sometimes wonder about their metabolism. You know, like when I'm out there muskie fishing, there's massive windows where they're just not feeding and then they turn on and they all feed for a short period. And then there's nothing again. Whereas Northern, it's just like constant, constant. They're just always eating. Um, and the fact that they increase their activity in the winter, whereas a muskie, they don't completely go dormant, but they're very lethargic under the ice in the winter. I think if you looked at the whole 365 days a year to see which fish eat the most, it might surprise a lot of people as to what a, a large predator actually eats in the lake like a muskie. Do you, do you think there's anything to that, Camden? Yeah, and that's that's kind of getting to the project that the other DNR biologist is working on. So I I don't have any numbers for that in front of me. I can't I can't make any claims that way. But uh, it, he will be able to kind of show throughout the course of a year what you know an average pike in a lake is is consuming, and then scale that up by the population size of the pike and compare that to the the entire walleye population and the entire muskie population and kind of look at how how those populations are coexisting and uh interacting in these different systems 
Looking into the future a little bit, do you foresee this study in your work having, uh, you know, direct implications for policy, you know, stocking, fishing regulations and, and things like that? Or is it is that too soon to say at this point? I would imagine it will. Um, so the, the state of Minnesota is due for a new uh, statewide muskie management plan uh, here in the next, you know, handful of years. So I think they're kind of hoping that I can have some more final data for them before they get too far into that. Just because in the last one, there was a big section on uh, looking at new lakes for muskie introductions. And a big part of that is always looking at what the available food sources are in those lakes. And so the stuff that we've been looking at these last four years will provide new and better information for for the managers that might be looking to stock a new lake uh, in terms of what prey is needed to sustain these populations. Yeah, it's a very hot topic when it comes to stocking new lakes. I know a few years ago I spoke at the Capitol against a bill that was being uh, pushed on the DNR to end the stocking uh, essentially in certain areas. And it was based on a lot of misinformation. And the struggle for me was, okay, I've spent my life understanding fish the best I can. I'm trying to understand the entire ecosystem and what's happening there. And there's DNR biologists sitting there speaking in front of all of our elected officials that are going to vote on this. And they're not listening to the DNR biologist. The head of fisheries was there saying, this is the information we have. And it was so frustrating because instead of listening they blamed all these other factors for other lakes and mismanagement and malax and whatever else. And it's like, hold on, you guys. Listen to what is being said here because all of your arguments against this are not based on any kind of facts at all. Like someone's worried about their dog going swimming in the lake and a muskie is just going to come up and eat. Like these are not things that are going to happen, people. But Okay, sorry. No, I'm going down this hole now. <laughs> I, I do want to say though, kind of, kind of going back to the the muskies and the walleye thing. I will say, you know, if if you're someone that doesn't fish very much or only fishes for a certain species of fish, and you're you're reeling in your target for the day, and maybe it was a slow day and you didn't catch very many, or it's been a tough year and you're about to get that one fish you've been after. And all of a sudden this big muskie comes up and grabs it and takes it from you. Like that's, that's a very real experience and a very vivid memory that's going to stick with you a long time. But I think a lot of people see that and say, Oh, I was reeling in this 17 inch walleye and the muskie grabbed it. They must be down there eating 17 inch walleye all right, the time. Right. When in reality, if you, if you're reeling in a 17 inch walleye on a jig, that's no different than a muskie angler dragging a 17 inch sucker on a quick strike rig behind their boat in the fall. Like the, the muskie is not going to see that it's a walleye or that it's, a sucker, they're going to see this is a vulnerable fish that will fit in my mouth and I'm going to try to eat it. And yeah, they so eat that's tinsel for crying out loud, <laughs> tinsel right. and mm-hmm. metal blades. They can't differentiate. I think, exactly. what, I think what I was trying to get at with my rant there, Camden, if somebody listening right now um, were to ask you, are you comfortable stocking a new lake with muskies or walleyes or whatever it might be, what would your response to them be based on what you've learned? Yeah, it's, uh, we'd have to make sure that the the lake is capable of, uh, of sustaining additional predation. 
And so all of the, the DNR offices will have kind of data from their annual surveys on these lakes where they can look at, you know, what are the growth rates of the predators in these lakes? How long are they living? What sizes are they reaching? What do the potential prey populations look like? Do we catch plenty of perch in this lake? Do we have lots of small bluegill? And then from there, you can kind of determine if if you have room in that system for an additional predator, whether that be walleye or muskie or whatever it is. But it's the information that we've gained will kind of point them towards the things that they should look at when they're considering a new stocking. And then they will have the information that they need to look at to make the best decision for their lake. And how about if we're just talking to, you know, your average angler like myself fishing on weekends or whatnot, you learned a lot about these fish. What are, you know, two or three things, yeah, that jump out to you that you could share with, you know, fishermen that might be both, you know, interesting to them and and possibly helpful to them on their, their quest for a muskie or another predator fish like that? I guess the two biggest ones I have are going to be direct contradictions of each other, but I'll throw them out there anyway. We'll take um, them. Don't be afraid to throw big baits any time of the year and never be afraid to throw small baits because we we see just a wide range of prey sizes for these fish. Um, on average, typically the prey fish length is about... 20% of the predator's total length. So for like a 50 inch muskie, let's say that's, that's right around 10 inches. Uh, if that's, you know, like a, a 15 inch walleye, that's right around three inches, which is, those are kind of in, in the realms of where people tend to tend to fish anyways. Um, but we've also seen, you know, big 48, 50 inch muskies with two or three, tiny little three inch perch in their bellies, or we've seen a mid to upper 20 inch walleye with like a 10 inch bullhead in its belly. So it's, there's a really wide range of what these fish are, are able and willing to eat. So don't ever be afraid to try something different, whether that's going really big and gaudy and, and trying to get a reaction out of a big fish, or if it's going really small and trying to trying to just entice maybe a little bit more leery predator or something that maybe has eaten somewhat recently but could go for a little bit of dessert maybe uh that something like that where where they're able to tie in a little buzz bait and give them some dessert natalie <laughs> right exactly just like a little piece <laughs> just of a little chocolate dessert. not I like a big eaten. pie yeah. just like a little something yeah Cannon, we appreciate all this information and we look forward to when this um it's going to get posted. Do you know where this study will get posted? Um, I'll, I'll make sure I share links to it, uh, both through social media. Um, and then I've got a link to, that's kind of a, a science social media almost. It's called ResearchGate. And I'll, I'll make sure links and PDFs are available there. Um, we are waiting for comments back on a paper we submitted over the summer, kind of looking at the, the first 10 lakes in the study. So hopefully here sometime this fall or winter, we'll hear back on that. And then that'll be the first one to go up. And then we'll keep looking at this here in the next couple of years. Once we have all the data from this year and any updates, we'll, we'll go on my social medias and then also on that uh, research page. And then I would imagine the Minnesota DNR will have links to all of this stuff as well. Go ahead, Natalie. 
I'm holding out hope that before, between now and the end of your, your field research, you guys know in Jaws, you know the movie Jaws when they pull out all the stuff from that one shark and they find like a license plate from a car. <laughs> I was really expecting one of those from a muskie. So if you find something like that, you got to let us know. I'm holding out hope. We hear something crazy. Will do. I will say <laughs> the likelihood is a lot higher that we pull something like that out of a bass stomach than a musky stomach. Good though. to know. Good to know. Throw license plates, Natalie. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Camden, I've got one last project for you. When this one is done, I've got, I'm just going to plant a seed here. <laughs> I want somewhere in Minnesota to have a super lake, a super predator lake. And I want to grow the biggest fish that we could possibly grow. Instead of walleye, I want Xander. And I want huge muskies and we need to put uh, freshwater shrimp. We need to put sheephead. We need to put Cisco in there as the food and just see what happens. I just want to see what happens. So we're talking like 30. Could you imagine 30 pound walleyes and 60 pound muskies swimming everywhere? Don't give them any other option, but only the big fish. The, the fatty fish. Sounds dangerous. <laughs> it, don't, it does sound dangerous, but what the heck? Just one out of 11,000 some lakes that we have. Can't we just have one fun lake to test on? <laughs> All right. I'll see thought. what I can do on that for you, Travis. <laughs> Everyone's shaking their head and Camden doesn't seem like. When has introducing a predator anything to nature been a bad yeah, it thing? It always when works has, out. When has it ever gone bad? <laughs> yeah, and especially a super predator <laughs> yeah. lake that would never no. go bad. I mentioned this to Brad Next Parsons, the DNR fisheries <laughs> chief. I was like, can we just can we just try Xander again? Can we? Because they did it in in North Dakota. Oh, did they? Yeah, there's a, there's one that. place in North Dakota you can go. Xander are massive. Basically, it's like a walleye on steroids. I mean, they're predator fish. They attack just like a musket. I mean, like I'd go to that lake and fish. Like, hey, I'm going on a Xander hunt, you know. And then also, oops, I didn't catch one of those, but I got a 60 inch musky <laughs> that is full of tulipy and it weighs 74 pounds. Come on, <laughs> think about it. Think about it. We'll leave you with that. The seed has been planted. <laughs> the seed has been planted. I know there's a lot of other anglers that are like, I'd fish that. Yeah. We'll see what we can do. We'll start a petition. I'm going to talk to Brad Parsons, and then that'll be your next assignment, Camden. All right. Sounds good. Yeah, Camden, this has been super fascinating. Thank you so much for, for your work and for sharing it with us today. And again, for those listening at home, make sure to check out uh, his Instagram and other works because it's, it's unbelievable. Fish puke. It's really cool to see. Fish puke. Doesn't it's get awesome. better than that. Yep. Very cool. Natalie, good job today. Thank you. You yeah. as well. Yeah, thanks. Brandon, you as well. Thanks. I didn't even <laughs> have my volume up. That's how good we of a job. We all just yeah. give each other pats we on the back, back after this. Tell each other how great we all did. <laughs> all right. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Do North Podcast. Thanks, everyone. Mm-hmm.